Did I turn this off by accident? No, I hear myself now. Okay, sorry, it's different. They got me in a robe today. I don't do this a grace and peace, and so it's a little bit different for me. Anyway, thank you, ma'am. That was beautiful, wonderful reminder of God's good care of our lives. It's a great joy to be with you all this morning to worship among you today. I bring you greetings from uh, your daughter church to the north and Anna, Grace and Peace Presbyterian. Uh, the saints there do send their greetings and their love to uh, the saints of Redeemer and McKinney. Uh, I was just telling uh, David Ray this morning that this week is my 10-year anniversary at Grace and Peace. And so, yes, praise the Lord for his goodness and his faithfulness. Uh, at Grace and Peace, he has truly sustained us and provided all of our needs, and he continues to do that. So we're thankful for your love and support in sending us out um, and for God's goodness in taking care of us. But uh, this morning, uh, we will be looking together at the Gospel of Mark. And I'll give you a little context for the, uh, the text that I'm reading. I'm going to be reading verses not, uh, 14 through 29. Uh, and just before this, in Mark chapter 8, we get uh, Peter's uh, famous confession that Jesus is the Christ. And of course, then uh, Jesus teaches his disciples that what it means for him to be the Christ is that he's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to be betrayed and he's going to suffer at the hands of the leaders of Israel and that he's going to die and he's going to be raised again. And of course, Peter, good old Peter, uh, far be it from you, Lord. And receives the rebuke of the Lord. You've got your eyes on the things of man, not on the things of God. Uh, and then we come to, uh, or Jesus then tells his disciples what it means to follow him. You too will die and bear your cross. You will die to yourself and you will follow me. And then Jesus takes uh, his three uh, seemingly best buddies amongst the disciples, Peter and James and John. And they go up on a mountain to pray and while they're on the mountain, this glorious thing takes place. We call it the transfiguration, right? Jesus' face shone like the sun, and his clothing were, were, were radiantly white. And the veil is pulled back, and we see the glory of the Son of God, right? The, the veil of the flesh, in a sense, pulled back for a moment. And, and Elijah and Moses show up, and they're talking with Jesus about his coming exodus in Jerusalem, as, as Luke would tell us in his account of it. Uh, and they fall on their faces. A glory cloud comes. And the voice of the Father from heaven says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And in the story that we have today, after that glorious moment, a heavenly moment on the mountain, is what Jesus and the disciples come back down the mountain to find. Um, back down the mountain from that glory to reality, right? To the reality of the fallen world. And so let's read these verses together. Now, if you would, if you're able, please stand with me out of love and respect for God's word as I read Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him, 
And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why why could we not cast it out? He said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Beloved, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let me pray for us as we consider God's word together. Great God in heaven, loving Father, abounding in steadfast love and mercy, faithfulness and truth, holy, 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 infinite, eternal and unchangeable, great rock and strong tower. We praise you, O Lord, for your word, which you have revealed yourself to us, which you have revealed uh, the glory of your character, which you have revealed the, the beauty and wonder and goodness of your creation, which you have revealed to us why it is so broken because of our sin and our own desperate need of a Savior, which you have revealed to us your great grace in sending forth your Son and your love to offer himself a sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins, that in him we might be reconciled to you, that in him we might have peace with you, that in him we might have everlasting life in communion with you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Oh God, we praise you for the wonder of your word, for revealing yourself to us in it. We ask, O oh Lord, that as we consider this text today, that it would be as a mirror for us in which we can see our own struggles with belief and faith, we might be convicted, and we might turn to you anew in repentance and faith and humble dependence this day and forever. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this story uh, certainly is quite striking because of the contrast between uh, the previous story and what we see here, right? Again, the glory of the mountain, uh, the peace of the mountain, the beauty of the mountain, the, the ultimate mountaintop experience, we might say. And then coming down to this, this chaotic scene, this scene of a, of a boy oppressed by a demon, the scene of a, of a fight between uh, the disciples of Jesus and, and the scribes uh, and, and the crowd watching and, and seemingly uh, there maybe enjoying this whole scene. And Jesus, he comes down and he finds himself back in the reality of a fallen world. And, and consider for just a moment the, the true meaning of that. For, for what does Scripture tell us about the Son of God and creation? There is nothing that was made that was not made through 
the, the, the eternal word, the Son of God, this one who has taken on flesh. Uh, in Colossians, Paul tells us that all things were made for, uh, through him and for him. And all things were made good, weren't they? And so if God made all things good and he, he made them uh, through the Son, the second person of the Trinity, the agent of creation, the instrument of creation, imagine the frustration, imagine the sorrow, imagine the grief of this one through whom all things were made good, walking the earth and seeing the brokenness and the ravishing of sin upon his good creation. Just think about the the moment of a break from it on the mountain and coming back down to this, this vivid scene of the reality of sin and how it has marred his creation. And yet what we see with Jesus as he comes down the mountain is that he doesn't run back up the mountain, does he? (laughs) Thanks be to God. He embraces, he engages this chaotic scene, this fallen scene, this scene of unbelief and sin. And he drives right at the heart of the issue, doesn't he? As Jesus always does. He tells us that the issue is faith, oh faithless generation. He calls his father uh, to faith, to to believe all things are possible for the one who believes. He even rebukes his disciples. Well, I'll explain this in a minute, but he he rebukes his disciples for seeking to cast out the Spirit without exercising faith. It's a story about faith. It's a story uh, that is a warning against uh, faithlessness. It's a warning for us against seeking to live life without faith without trust. And so before we consider this story, just very briefly, a good question for us to ask is, what is faith, right? If it's a story about faith, it's going to call us out for our own struggles to live by faith. What is faith? And of course, many of you, if not most of you, could quote to me Hebrews 1.11, right? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction or the, uh, the, the, yeah, the conviction of things unseen. But a little bit more than that, faith, um, many uh, theologians will tell us, has three elements to it. Faith is knowledge and assent and trust. And I say that to you because I think it's very important that we understand that that faith is not just hope in whatever we want to hope in, right? It's not hope in the unseen things that, that we just decide that we want, I don't know if you guys can remember this. Maybe they do it every year. I don't know. I remember um, uh, Macy's at Christmas having a campaign that said, believe, gold sparkly letters and an exclamation point. And the question is, in what? (laughs) You could put that everywhere if you want. Santa? Uh, Goodness and and happiness? I don't know. What are we to believe in? That is not what the Bible means by faith. Faith is never a nebulous thing in the Bible. When Jesus comes down the mountain and says, oh, faithless generation, he's not, he's not condemning them for not finding something to put their faith in, right? He's condemning them for putting their faith in the wrong place. But in the Bible, faith always has an object, right? So it's always knowledge. It's always, it's always based on what has been revealed to us. So it's knowledge. It's also a scent. It's believing that what has been revealed to us is true. But even more than that, it's trusting. 
It's embracing it. It's entrusting ourselves to it. So this morning, when I came up on the chancel, make sure Bryant will be proud of me for saying the right word, chancel, I, I came to this chair, and I looked at it, and I said, that's a chair, right? My brain says that's a chair. It looks like a chair. It's got four legs. It's got a seat. It, it looks like a chair. It looks like a sturdy chair. I believe that's a sturdy chair, right? Knowledge and ascent. But I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't have faith in that chair until I sat down in that chair, did I? <laughs> right? The trust that it actually will hold me. Maybe something a little more serious. This is the word of God. I know that because it tells me that. I believe it to be true. I assent to it. This is the word of God. Do I have faith in it if I go out and seek uh, the, the direction for how to my, live my life from the worldviews all around me, from the sinful desires within myself? No. Right, I believe it to be. I have faith in it if I give my life to it and I live. Right. That's what faith is in the Bible. It's based upon uh, what God has revealed to us, knowledge, believing that these things are true, and then entrusting ourselves to them. And so when Jesus comes down the mountain and he, and he, he sees this scene before him, uh, uh, this chaotic scene of an argument and a big crowd, and this man comes before him, he says, or first of all, he says, what's going on here? What are you guys arguing about? And the man comes before him, he falls down before him, and he, he, he lays his heart out to him. My son, my only son, Luke tells us, he has this evil spirit, and it gives him seizures, and it causes him to, to flail about, and it causes him to foam and grind at the mouth, and it causes him to be rigid. And I brought him to your disciples. Expecting them to help. I'm sorry. I brought them to you. I brought him to you, but you weren't here. So I asked your disciples, and they couldn't help. And Jesus cries out, Oh, faithless generation. I don't know about you. Maybe when I was reading that uh, this morning, and definitely when I was studying it uh, the previous weeks, that's a hard statement for me to understand. Uh, the context of it is hard for me to understand. I struggle with this response from Jesus because, because here's a hurting man. Here's a man who's suffering watching his only son have these fits and, and, and be thrown into fire and water and be oppressed by a demon. He's on his knees. He's pouring out his heart before Jesus, our gentle Savior, our compassionate Lord. And, and rather than embracing him, and rather than being gentle with him, his immediate response is, oh, faithless generation, how long do I have to put up with you? It's out of character, seemingly, isn't it? But is it? <laughs> Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God. And so, and so we forget that Jesus, too, is holy, holy, holy. Forget that in his deity, he too is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. We forget that he is full of righteousness and justice, perfect in these things. And so his proper response to unbelief, which is rebellion against the God who created you for himself, his proper response against sin, which Matthew does tell us that Jesus says here, oh, faithless and twisted, crooked generation. His proper response against those things is, in fact, wrath, isn't it? For he is God. It is certainly frustration, for he is God. And so he cries out, O oh, faithless generation. 
Why does he say that? Well, first of all, I think he's looking at his, his nine disciples who were left down at the foot of the mountain. And again, as we learn toward the end of the story, he tells us that they did not exercise faith in seeking to cast out this evil spirit. They were faithless in seeking to cast out this spirit. But then he says it goes beyond that because then when I I look out into this crowd and, and I see scribes, I see these official scribes that have been sent from Jerusalem, most likely, uh, to, to find what's wrong with Jesus and to try to argue against him and, and, and try to point out to people that he's not who he seems to be saying he is and who the people seem to be saying he is. He, he, he sees a people that he described just two chapters earlier in, in chapter 7 with these words of Isaiah, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Or he sees before him those who should know. Scribes, they know the, the scriptures backwards and forwards, don't they? They, they copy it out. They make, uh, they make interpretation of it. They, they teach the scriptures. They, they should know. They do know backwards and forwards. And yet before them is the fulfillment of all of the promises in those scriptures. Before them is the one who is carrying out the things that were promised of the coming servant and Messiah of the Lord. And they refuse, don't they? No, absolutely not. I will not believe that you are the one who has been promised. I will not believe that you are the Messiah who is to come. They know everything, and yet they refuse to assent to it. And I wonder if you would allow me to be a little pointed this morning and ask you a hard question. I wonder if those words, they they praise me, they honor me with their lips, and yet their hearts are far from me. Don't describe some of us, some of you in this room. You know it all. You wouldn't say it that way, would you? But you know it all. You know the Bible. You know what it says. You know your theology. You listen to all the right podcasts, and you can quote the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms to me. You can make all of the arguments. Don't you dare come and tell me God doesn't exist because I will prove you wrong. And yet your heart is far from the Lord. Because in reality, if you would be honest with me, in reality, you are trusting in that knowledge rather than in the one whom it describes. And trusting yourself to him in humble dependence. Sitting in the chair, as it were. Or I wonder if some of you would be honest enough to say that you believe yourself to be clean. Again, you know better than to say it. But you believe yourself to be good. You believe yourself to be righteous. You believe yourself to be able to keep your life under very good control. And you're trusting in that righteousness for your good standing before God rather than entrusting yourself to His grace and what Christ has done. Maybe some of you here today are simply questioning all of this. 
You wouldn't claim to have it all. Maybe you're more like the crowd. Maybe you're just here as a spectator. You're here uh, with family or with friends, and you don't understand all of this about Jesus. You don't know what it might mean to entrust yourself to him. And you're just questioning these things, and you're wondering these things. To, 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 to all who may be described by those words, a warning to you. Those trusting in your knowledge and your ability to argue, those trusting in your righteousness and clean life, those even questioning and wondering about Jesus, a warning. Jesus' words here to this crowd are his words to you as well. O faithless generation, how long shall I be among you? How long shall I bear with you. Your life is a frustration to Jesus. And he says, how long will I bear with you? And the reality is, friends, I tell you this because I do love you. He will not tarry forever. Jesus Christ is coming again, and he is coming with judgment, and only he can save you, and only he can sustain you in this Christian life. Consider for just a moment with me the story of how Jesus delivers this boy from this demon oppression, because I believe that it is more than simply that. It is a, a picture for us of what it looks like to be in sin, apart from Jesus, apart from faith, apart from God's grace. And a picture of what Jesus does for us or what he offers to us in deliverance. First of all, we see this boy and he is, he is under the control of this evil spirit, isn't he? He has no control over his body. He does what the spirit desires him to do. He is in bondage. This boy would not choose to throw himself down on the ground and, and, and roll about to, to grind his teeth and foam with the mouth. He would not choose to throw himself in water or into fire. He is out of control. He is mastered. He is in bondage. And isn't that how Scripture describes our own life in sin? Our own life apart from God's grace. Sin is bondage, beloved. Sin will master you. Sin desires to master. Don't we all know it? If you give sin an inch, it will take a mile, won't it? The believers, the followers of Christ in the room know it to be true. It, it will not stop. It, it will continue to, to seek to wrap us up and seek to continue to bind us. And, and apart from God's grace and, and outside of, of a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, our life is bondage to sin. We are, we are mastered by it, even though it's so often a willing bondage and it doesn't feel that way. We have no control over our lives. And yet, what does Jesus do for this boy? Look at verse 25. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. Beloved, if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you give yourself to him in faith by his grace, Right? He breaks the bondage of sin over your life. He breaks the mastery of sin over your life. He says to sin, get out. And not that it's removed from us completely, but it never comes in again to bind us and to have control and power over our life because Christ is king. <laughs> 
Christ has mastered sin and death in our behalf through his death upon a cross, bearing God's wrath for our sins, his resurrection to new life and power as the son of God, shown to be victorious over sin and death. And as Paul says in Romans 6, when we are united to him, that death is our death and that resurrection is our resurrection. And therefore we are dead to the power of sin and we are alive to the power of God in us. This is what Jesus offers to us. That's the other thing that we see here. Sin, beloved, is death. Verse 26, and after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he is dead. Right? Sin, beloved, is death. Sin destroys. Sin seeks to destroy your life. It will destroy your relationships. Selfishness, pride, immoral, immorality, these things destroy relationships. Selfishness, pride, immorality, these things destroy the things that we try to build up in our lives, don't they? They, they will take away, uh, they will suck the very life out of us. Sin is death. And of course, there's another, another uh, meaning to that, right? As, as the Apostle Paul would tell us in Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your sins and transgressions. Not just that it was killing you, sucking the life, sucking the hope, sucking the joy out of you, but that you were powerless against it. You are dead apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. But look here, look what Jesus does, verse 27. But Jesus took him by the hand. Isn't it wonderful? A gentle restoration. He bends and takes him by the hand and he lifted him up and he arose. It's a resurrection language. I don't know the word to believe this boy was actually dead. And yet, uh, Mark, he portrays it for us in in resurrection language. Uh, Jesus gives this boy new life. He is a new creation. He is no longer under the bondage of sin. He has has life. uh, And the way that it's meant to be lived, we might say, is exactly what Jesus does for us in his grace as we trust him, as we give ourselves to him in faith sets us free from the death of sin. He gives us new life. He makes us new creatures by his grace that we might live. And beloved, live in the way that that the triune God created you to live. To live uh, for his glory and to live in the way that, that, that he would command that you live. That's what you are made for. And so to be set free to live that way is the, is, is the greatest joy. It's the greatest way to live your life. It's, it's this, this life that Jesus would give us if we would give ourselves to him in faith, in trust. If we would say, yes, you are the son of God. <laughs> yes, I am a sinner. Yes, I am dead. Yes, I cannot save myself. Yes, I believe these things to be true. Lord Jesus, help me. Lord Jesus, save me. Lord Jesus, lift me to new life. Friends, if you're here today and you haven't done that, I strongly exhort you to do so. Strongly exhort you to look to Christ, to cry out, I am a sinner deserving of your wrath for my rebellion against you. 
I give myself to you in trust, for you are my only hope of salvation, my only hope of peace, my only hope of life. Friends, if that's you today, I'd beg you to talk to me after the service. I would love to talk to you more about that. I know that the, the elders here, anybody in this room would love to talk to you about knowing Jesus and entrusting your life to him. Give yourself to him. He is graciously calling you today just by the fact that you're in this room. Give yourself to Jesus. Be saved. But, but what about those of us who have done that? and who are walking and following after Jesus. Consider the last two verses here. Uh, Verse 28, And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And remember, these disciples, they've left everything to follow Jesus, right? We know that they have, they've been kind of stumbling along trying to figure out who he is. They don't fully understand that yet. And yet they've given themselves to follow him. They've, they've entrusted themselves to him in that sense. They, they, they are going after him, right? They're following him. And yet they, they ask here, they couldn't cast out the evil spirit. Why couldn't we cast it out? And, and, and they had reason to believe that they would be able to do so. And in Mark chapter 6, Jesus sent out his disciples two by two. Listen to this, verse seven, uh, chapter 6, verse 7. He called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And then verse 12, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent and they cast out many demons, <laughs> anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. They had been given authority over the evil spirits. They they knew that they should be able to cast out this evil spirit in the name of Jesus. They believed it. They gave assent to it, didn't they? Why? Why do I say that? Because they thought they should be able to do it. They're disappointed that they couldn't. They believed that they should be able to cast out this evil spirit. But, But why? Why couldn't they cast out the Spirit. Jesus says to them, verse 29, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Matthew says that he said to them, because of your little faith, I think better poor faith. He's not talking about quantity, he's talking about quality. He talks about uh, faith of a mustard seed. So, right, it's not quantity, it's quality. This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. They did not pray. The disciples, they went in their own power, I believe. I believe they went in their own power. I believe they they, they believed they had the authority. They'd been given that authority, and yet they went on their own and tried to cast out the evil spirit rather than stopping to pray. Rather than going in humble dependence upon the Lord and saying, we, we can't do this in our own strength. You've given us authority. Do it for us and through us. And I wonder, beloved, how many of us try to live the Christian life in our own strength far too often. Rather than living in humble dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder how often you can figure it out, right? I'm a smart person. I've got good skills. I make good choices. 
I don't need the Lord today. And then there's a big ticket item and you do, right? Somebody gets sick. You lose your job. uh, Something big happens and then you're on your knees and you're praying. But every day, you're on your own. You know what the number one indicator of that in your life probably is? Prayerlessness. You don't pray, do you? You you go through life and you pray here on Sunday mornings with the crowd and you pray at the dinner table and maybe a perfunctory prayer if you read your Bible that day. But really your life is characterized by prayerlessness. And do you know what the number one cause of prayerlessness is in your life? Guess what? It's not that you're too busy. I know you are busy, but it's not that you're too busy. It's not that you don't know how. It's not that you've never been taught or that you don't know what to say or that you don't have enough experience. It's not that either. Do you know what it is? It's an abundance of pride in your life. Prayerlessness is evidence of a prideful life. I've got this. I don't need God. You'd never say it that way. But if you are living your life without moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, decade by decade prayer, then you are proclaiming, I've got this, and I don't need you, Lord. And that's exactly what Jesus means when he tells his disciples in the Matthew version, it's because of your poor faith. You see, sometimes we we get confused and we think the fact that we know everything and we have all the answers and we are really good at figuring out life means that we have great faith and we're really great Christians. And Jesus teaches exactly the opposite is true. Recognizing that you don't have it together. Recognizing that you are not strong. Recognize that you are not wise. Recognize that you, you cannot walk with Jesus on your own. That is great faith. Recognizing that and crying out, what? Help my unbelief. Isn't it wonderful? That the picture of true faith, the picture of great faith in this story is the father of this little boy who comes to Jesus. It's it's a great story to check it out. He comes to Jesus with expectation, doesn't he? When he first comes with this boy uh, who has this evil spirit, he comes to, I brought him to you to be healed. He came believing that Jesus could do it. And then what happened? Jesus wasn't there. He was up on the mountain. And so he asked the disciples, well, you, can you guys help me? Yeah, we can help you. But then they can't, right? And they fail to cast out the demon because of their own lack of exercising faith, of prayer in the moment. And what's happened to the man's faith now? It has wavered, hasn't it? When he comes and he he kneels before Jesus, his faith has wavered, right? When they bring the boy uh, to Jesus, the Spirit uh, sees Jesus as the Spirit's, do they know, the Spirit's know Jesus, right? They always know Jesus. And they're terrified of him and it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground. Then Jesus, we we do see the compassionate side of Jesus, verse 21. How long has this been going on? From childhood, and it has often cast him into fire, into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, you see it? The switch in his faith from, I brought my boy to you to be healed, to 
I mean, is there anything you can do? Please, is there anything you can do? Because of the failure of the disciples, this man's faith has wavered, and yet Jesus teaches him a lesson, doesn't he? Your faith is not in my disciples. If you can, Jesus says. Some translators will, will, will turn that into a question. If you can, right? And there's good reason for that. Could go either way. If you can, if you can, all things are possible for one who is. The question is not whether I can do something for your son, right? The question is not whether Jesus is able. The question is, will you entrust yourself to him? Beloved, the question is not whether Jesus can save you. (laughs) He can. He has accomplished it. He has died. He has been raised on the third day. He has accomplished your salvation. The question is, will you entrust yourself to him? Beloved, the question is not whether Jesus can sustain you in the Christian life. The question is not whether he will keep you as you you walk through this life, whether as we sang earlier, he will hold you fast, right? The question is not whether he will be faithful to you. The question is not whether he will will work in you to grow you in holiness and, and to grow you to look more like his image. The question is not in the power of Jesus or the power of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The question is, will you entrust yourself to him? Or will you demand to continue entrusting yourself to yourself? And that's the question. Will you cry out with this man? I believe. Help my unbelief. Fall on your knees day by day and say, Lord, yes, I believe. I trust. But I am weak. I stumble in my ability to trust. Help me, Lord Jesus. Because the truth of the matter is, is that if we are going to live this Christian life together, if we are going to walk with Jesus in this life, if we are going to be his ambassadors, if we are going to be salt and light in the world, if if we are going to walk with him, we must walk in his grace day in and day out. Give ourselves to him in humble dependence day in and day out. And so, friends, I will close with just... This exhortation, and I've already said it, but it helps to hear things again and again and again. If your life is characterized by faithlessness, figuring it out on your own, not needing to give yourself in humble dependence upon Jesus Christ, you are in great danger. You're headed for a crash. You're headed for a failure. You may even be heading to showing yourself to never have believed at all. But he is gracious, he is merciful, he is kind. And so he calls you today, repent and believe. Humble yourself before him. Cry out, I believe, help my unbelief. And again, if you haven't ever trusted him at all, please give yourself to him in faith for salvation today, for deliverance, for new life. Let me pray and ask God that he would do these things for you. Father in heaven, once again we praise you for your astonishing grace to us in Jesus Christ. That you in your love for us would send forth Christ, not that we might be loved by you, but that we might be reconciled to you in your love. That you, O Lord, 
day by day, call us anew to faith and trust and dependence upon you. That you do keep our lives, that you do watch over our lives, that you never sleep and you never slumber, that you're always working good for us who are in Christ Jesus. Always working your good purposes and and for your glory. We believe, oh God, help our unbelief. Lord, as I stand before what I know to be, what I can see to be a bunch of put-together people, a bunch of successful people, a bunch of wise people, a bunch of people who can figure things out. Grant us your grace to understand that we're broken and we are weak and we desperately need you, O oh Father. Transform our lives. Make us a praying people, a humble praying people on our knees for you, before you moment by moment, day by day. Again, Lord, we praise you for your grace and your mercy and your love to us in Christ that you don't leave us in our stubbornness. You don't leave us in our hardness and demanding that we be independent and strong. But you and your grace convict us. You and your grace come to us. You and your grace renew us. Do it for us, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. Beloved, having heard God's word, we're going to sing wonderful hymn, number 679, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus. Please stand with me.